You're listening to the Brown Sign Project podcast. Do you spend hours creating your rotors and then spend days constantly adjusting them? We have the solution. At Staff Savvy, we specialize in shift schedules and timesheet solutions for visitor attractions. Easily manage multiple complex teams of permanent, casual, freelance and volunteer staff across different locations and disciplines. With fast communication features, automatic compliance tools, training management and simple timesheet tools, Staff Savvy has been used and trusted by organisations such as V&A Dundee, the South Bank Centre and the Royal Albert Hall, with great cost-saving benefits. Visit us at staffsavvy.com forward slash brown sign project to learn more and schedule a demo of our magic rotor button. Welcome to the Brown Sign Project, the podcast for tourism and attractions industry professionals. I'm Carly Strawn. And I'm Carlton Gadgetar. In this episode of the Brown Sign Project, we have an inspirational conversation with Anthony Lynch, the head of visitor services at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Anthony highlights the joys of working in our industry for people in non-creative roles and gives us essential advice on how to run large teams in various disciplines. Speaking of which, we'd like to thank our series sponsors as always, Staff Savvy and Stephen Spencer and Associates. Hello again, another podcast, another day. Hello, Carly, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. So today, um, again, we're going to go through careers, um, but with a little twist, I think. Um, and we've got this amazing person coming on to introduce himself. Um, his name is Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to kind of learn a bit about you and what you do um, in the industry. So let's start with that. Kind of give us a quick introduction of what you do and how you do it and all that kind of stuff. Uh, okay. Um, I'll do my very best. So hello, my name is Anthony Lynch. I am the Head of Visitor Services and Security at the Royal Albert Hall. So day to day, that's basically, hopefully, most of the people you see when you arrive at the hall, you're coming to see a concert, you're coming on a little tour of the building, you're here for an education event. Ideally, the first person you meet will be one of my team, they will scan your ticket, they will show you to your seat, they will, you know, search your bag for you, they will make sure you get to your destination, tell you the most important question of the day, which is where are the bathrooms? that kind of stuff so ideally I look after all of that and it's around and a couple of hundred people that I look after overall very very important question when you get obviously through the doors is where are the nearest bathrooms I think we we all agree in tourism that that is number one priority for most people (laughs) the number one question without (laughs) what what an amazing building to work in I I remember I used to work there I've worked there for two years as a lovely red coat um, did you? Yeah, I did. Oh, it so was exciting. amazing, amazing experience out there. So, highly recommend if anyone's not been to the Royal Albert Hall, go, go to it. Especially that's uh, classical spectacular. <gasps> if you don't like classical music, this show is amazing. So, yeah, yeah, cannons, fireworks, all sorts. The of whole works inside. So, here's a little plug to Royal Albert Hall. Um, so our icebreaker question is the same for everyone this season, um, because I think it's very telling about uh, people as to kind of where they came from and, and where they are today. So my question is, what job did you want to do as a child? What was your dream role when you were when you were a kid? Oh, wow, that's so interesting. Um, I've never been one of those people who always who had the dream job. 
I know people who do. I've got a friend who wanted to be a dentist since he was five and Kelsa Breeze, he's now a dentist. But I didn't do that. So I cycled through all the usual ones. You know, I wanted to be a doctor and then a footballer and then an astronaut and then a train driver, etc. But I suppose the one that stuck a little bit and has probably stuck with me my whole life is I really, really, really want to write a novel at some point. So I'm going to say writer. Wow. <laughs> That's wow cool. amazing and, <laughs> and as we were just discussing about um previous guests on this podcast have also engaged in in writing novels so you can definitely join that that cohort at some point that'd be lovely i've, I've, I've definitely got the ideas whether i've got the time or, or actually the skill or the talent is remains to be seen but yeah what, what's important is the ideas though i think you know you can have all the the uh delivery you want but if it's a terrible idea it's never going to go anywhere <laughs> This is a very good point. Yeah. My, my novel about people's requests to go to the toilet at major cultural attractions probably isn't going to go anywhere, I guess. <laughs> you, know, you know what? You never know. You never know. <laughs> good point. Yeah. Um, cool. And so how my kind of lead on question from that is how do you then get from, you know, being a kid who wants to do all these various roles is to how did you get where you are today? So what qualifications do you have and, and sort of how have they impacted your life have they impacted your life you know did you train to be a dentist with your friend and then <laughs> seek something different <laughs> yeah. no it's um so qualification wise I just did what everybody did you know went through school and uh, ended up at lots of people like lots of people ended up at university doing English and history which is always something that I was really interested in but I didn't really choose it with a with a great desire to go off and be a historian or teach English or anything like that I just they were the things I enjoyed and I didn't have many better ideas um, and then when I left university I started working in a bar which was um, this really great bar in Newcastle called the Trent House Soul Bar which used to play own, pretty much only northern soul music. It sounds amazing. <laughs> it was yeah and growing up I grew up in a little village in Nottinghamshire and northern soul just it wasn't on my radar whatsoever and I walked into this place and heard this really really great record called surprise surprise by a guy called bobby womack and i just hadn't heard music like that before and it completely blew my mind and i thought oh, i've got to work here so i just started working behind the bar you know sort of like a sort of young fresh-faced kind of little kid and then sort of stayed for a bit longer and then the guy who owned it who's this just inspirational character called tom corker who i'll get i'll, I'll probably drop him into a story at some point, had a big influence on me. Um, he decided he wanted to open up this little nightclub called World Headquarters. And it was going to be based really, really firmly on this foundation that in Newcastle, there wasn't really an alternative scene when I there. You, there was a place called the Big Market and it was very sort of chart heavy and it was all sort of no trainers and, you know, that kind of stuff when you used to go to nightclubs and things. And he wanted to open this place called World Headquarters and it was going to be really firmly based around this idea of bringing it together uh, the sort of black community of Newcastle and the white community of Newcastle. And it was going to be this place, which was for everybody. As long as you were a nice person, this was going to be your place. It was going to play Northern Soul and funk and hip hop and all this other stuff. And he said, oh, do you want to come and like run it with me? I said, yeah, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So I did that for, and it started off in this little building, it was about 180 capacity. And then we bought a new building and it got bigger and bigger. And we opened an arts venue called the Curtis Mayfield House uh, Art Centre which was um, this really, really huge project when I was quite young, but it was just so much fun. And then we started putting on DJs like Mark Ronson and Dave Lowe and Jazzy Jeff and all these other things. And I just had this really, really amazing, really lucky life 
up until I was kind of in my mid thirties, and I've been there for nearly twenty years doing that. And then I just thought, oh, I'm ready for a change. And we, me and my wife, moved to London. I got a job running an exhibition on the Titanic, the ship, which was at the O2. Which um, sound, sounds ominous, actually. When yeah, it does, that. doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> so I know an awful lot about things like weird stuff about how many eggs were on the Titanic and all this kind of thing. And it ended up, it was a big American company who did it, and they got the salvage rights to the actual vessel. And so they would go down and they would find artefacts and then they would display them. But there was a there was also a a sort of um, a theme running through it and it would end up they would they had a literal iceberg in the exhibition that you could come in and touch and feel how cold it was and at the beginning of the exhibition you'd get like a little name and at the end it would show you the names of all the passengers on the ship and you would effectively get to find out if you lived or died or if you were in first class or third class and a little if they had info a little bit of information about your passenger it was really interesting and I really enjoyed it it played into history and then I went on to be the event services manager at the Olympic Stadium for London 2012. So that was really good fun. Got to watch Usain, spoke to Usain Bolt, which is still one of my sort of great things. And watched Jess Ennis run over the line in the 800 and did all that good stuff. Uh, and then left there, became the tours manager at the Royal Albert Hall. So running tours of the building. And then just over time, moved into visitor services. And yeah, here we are today. You you definitely book the trend for in my mid thirties. I thought we'd move to London, you know, which yeah. is <laughs> the opposite of everybody else. Yeah. yeah, it seemed like a great idea at the time. But yeah, no, it is definitely a great idea. Yeah. But, sorry to go back to your original question. In terms of qualifications, nothing majorly relevant. I've done bits of bobs in employment since then, but now I definitely didn't train to be in the tourist industry or that kind of thing. Yeah, well, and you know, once you come, you can't leave. So that's generally speaking, you know, it gets you hooked. And then it <laughs> doesn't matter it, it, what you did at, at university or what you did before that, whatever. Once you're in, you, you can never leave. So once you're in, you're in. It's too exciting to leave. It's too much fun. I, I love it. So, um, but that actually brings me to my question that I'm going to ask you. And it's, it's all about like the people, like, um, why should people come to work in the tourist attraction industry? I mean, you've got some amazing experience kind of working in the Olympics and this experience in the Titanic exhibition, but why should they come? Oh, God, there's so many reasons. I think the thing that, the, uh, the, I'd say there's like three things that really keep me engaged in it and continue to keep me engaged in it. And it's a cliche to say, but number one is the people just the sheer amount of creativity in this industry is mind-blowing at times, you know, and it's it's not just creativity in the sort of artistic sense necessarily, but the problem-solving side of things, whether that be, you know, literal uh, problems with infrastructure or problems with uh, physical things that they need to resolve and solve, but it's, but the, but, but the people, you know, the, the British public or the world's public is such an interesting and varied sort of thing that, you know, you, your, your day is never the same because you interact with so many different people on a daily basis. And every day there's something inspiring and every day there's something challenging and every day there's something hard and something easy and joyful. And the, the whole gamut of human relationships is there somewhere. And it never gets, never gets dull. And I feel like I, through this industry, I've met more inspiring people who just work in the industry they're not famous they're not big names they're not who are you know the sort of the headline talent that people see 
they're the people who work in the most niche roles who do things that are so incomprehensible to me there's you know i've got a friend who works in it here at the hall it's so far away from what i'm good at and he's amazing at it that i'm just in awe of him and because of him a million other things get to take place and you know his name will never be in the lights but believe me the whole sh- thing falls off its runners if he doesn't do his job and he doesn't do it really really well so the people is number one definitely number two would easily be the the kind of event side of things just getting to see things that other people you know quite rightly have to pay top dollar to come and see or to experience or to do you get to live all the time you get to change it you get to make it better you get to contribute to it and there's a real feeling of satisfaction when the curtain comes down or the doors close or whatever it might be and you realize you've just had another brilliant day it's been brilliant like loads of people have come they've had a really really amazing time and and finally it's the i think it's the excitement that comes with it i think just that that sheer level of excitement that comes with every day that you're going to you know, the people are brilliant. The thing you're doing and putting on, performing, whatever it might be, is brilliant. And then just the, the physical experience of being here in that kind of environment, that kind of atmosphere, it's kind of addictive, I think. As you said before, you can't leave because you can't leave. You know, you just can't. You, you sort of, I might leave. No, I won't leave. You know, you yeah. get that. <laughs> and I think you're right, because every day is different. You sort of feel sometimes, especially when you might have shows that change every, you know, even with the longer shows, you're still, you know, your routine is still, there's a new show coming. There's always, you're always thinking three, six, 12 months ahead is that you can't leave because you've already worked on that stuff that's coming. You know, <laughs> you sort of feel like you want to see it to fruition. And it's always like whenever you move from that ven- kind of venue, it's like tearing yourself away from those things that you've already put lots of effort and, and, and work into. Definitely. Yes. The one sort of exception to that, I guess, was the Olympics. So, you know, it, it comes with so much prep and so much thing, but it has a really definitive endpoint. And it's the first time I've ever really experienced that idea that something, you know, you plan for it for months and months and months and months and months, and then it's on for, what, like two weeks? You know, or the bit I was involved in was on for just about two weeks. And then it's over and you have this amazing sense of, like, relief and satisfaction and elation. And then somehow the next day, but oh gosh, what now? You know, sort of thing. But but it's still there. That's still that sort of really special feeling that maybe you do get an insurance or I don't know other jobs, but maybe you don't. It's quite interesting you mentioned something that because I had a similar feeling when I worked at Expo Twenty Twenty, um, that was for 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 six months, and. Um, when you were in it, you're like, oh my gosh, this when is this going to end? Not in a bad way, but it's just so, so full on and so in your face. Um, you don't really get time to kind of enjoy it, to be honest as well, on, on that level. But after I finished and reflected on the experience I had, I was like, do you know what? That was amazing. Yeah. Absolutely mind-blowing. Um, just the, the offerings they had in a, as an attraction yeah. was brilliant so I totally relate to you on on that that experience yeah. yeah I really liked what you said as well about people being creative because I think we sort of think of tourism as a creative industry but when we talk about it that way we're really talking about the creation you know in in an artistic sense we're talking about you know art or we're talking about building or architecture or, or you know a, a dance production or a music production yeah. But I think actually 
a lot of our creativity and, and we've talked about this with, with previous people and I think it is especially relevant when we're talking about a theatre space is there is a real distinction between kind of front of house and back of house and like you say you might not be the person whose name is in lights but you're absolutely fundamental to bringing that to, to life every day and I think that's a real um, skill for our industry in terms of you might not be able to draw or paint or dance or play an instrument but you might just know where to put the gaffer tape when it matters yeah. <laughs> you know, or the network cable or whatever yeah. whatever it is that you do and that being able to think in that way creatively laterally and get the show on the road is is kind of vitally important I think that yeah. you really underestimate that no I totally agree and quite often as well it can't be underestimated under extreme pressure under extreme pressure to get the curtain up at 7.30 or the doors open at 9am or whatever it is you're facing for the day. That, that ability to be calm enough to think laterally, to, to see a problem and think, okay, the traditional method of solving that problem is, has failed us. You know, what is our solution to, to, to achieve the same result? And watching people go through that, sometimes in real time, is just truly fascinating and sometimes quite awe-inspiring. You know, when someone thinks of an idea that, you know, deep down, you wouldn't have thought of in a million. You could have been there for months and you still wouldn't have thought of that idea. It's really, really inspiring. That's right. Every journey a visitor takes through your attraction should immerse them in your values and heritage and leave them wanting more. Stephen Spencer and Associates are a team of highly experienced tourism and retail aficionados who will help you develop a sixth sense in order to maximise every opportunity. We're here to help you build and engage your team to own and enhance your visitor experience. Above all, we're here to help you increase your profitability in these challenging times because people become engaged team members and loyal customers when they love your attraction as much as you do. You're listening to the Brown Sign Project podcast. Um, so we talked creativity um, and kind of that that ability to sort of think on the spot. What other skills do you think are kind of really vital for bringing people to bring to the industry with them? I think the, the most important one I, I really believe will always be a, around sort of people skills, emotional intelligence, that kind of thing. Because I think I spend a lot of time thinking about interactions with the public in my role, about how do our front of house staff or our security staff interact with the public? You know, what, what do we want from them? You know, we, we've thankfully, as has most of the world, you know, we're, we're a long way distant now from that idea that you would give people what is effectively like a customer service script and they would walk in in the first, good evening, sir slash madam, have a nice day, you know, that kind of sort of robotic approach um, to things. You know, what we really want is we want people with personalities who have particular behavioural traits. So I, I always emphasise as much as I can, ultimately, we want people who are kind and we want people who are helpful and we want people who are empathetic because I really believe in this idea that that everybody acts out of good intentions. Sometimes the manifestation of those good intentions is awful and involves people shouting and screaming and kind of being up in your face. But actually the, the motivation, if you go right back to what why they're doing it, their motivation is always rooted in something good, their intention was always good. They're screaming because actually it's rooted in their, they were worried about their, their children or I don't know, something exactly like that. So having people 
in particularly in customer facing roles who have that skill set is utterly invaluable but i think it translates also into the non public facing roles because again back to this idea you're dealing with people who are under pressure you know who who've got to deliver a certain thing at a certain time in a certain way and there's a lot riding on it there's artists expectations promoters expectations there's public expectations there's all this expectation and if you have the right people skills you can bring the best out of them you can help them through those moments you can empower them to use what they already have which is a god-given talent and you know an ability but you can help them put that into practice in real life in real places so i think the people skills is is really hugely important you've got to love working under pressure you've got to and be willing to do it and and understand what what that means retain that and that's incredibly important because again we're back to time pressures and things like that so it's a really it's often undervalued but everybody in this in our kind of industry has skills really valuable skills really transferable skills really important skills you can take to any industry in the world if you can frame it directly for the people who may not may not understand that which i find is really important and it, i think ultimately and i'm sure loads of other people have said this you need such a good sense of humor you know that will yes a blog way <laughs> maybe maybe a sort of slightly sick weird sense of humor sometimes yeah, but... yeah more people yeah. like that please yeah well that's definitely definitely fair you've got to be able to see the humor in adversity for sure yeah know, and, it... and i do think that there's a lot in that in terms of like you say being able to work under pressure is one skill being able to find the humor in working under pressure is the stuff that will you know keep you going when stuff does get really tough because i think I've seen people who are not that good under pressure working in roles that, you know, you sort of, it needs to be an embedded skill and it, it is something you can learn, but it comes with practice. And I yeah. do think that, you know, like you said, that it's one thing to think I can be calm, but it's another thing to be like, and I can come out of this and still have my sense of humor intact and still have friendships intact and communication skills to, to kind of match it. It's definitely a, yeah. a, a personality trait and a skill that you can you can build over time it is and I, th- I think there's I think it's sometimes underestimated as well that you know we're 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 just an industry like any other industry so people need you know we're an industry we will also we will always need IT professionals we will always need you know people who are you know good with their hands you know for building services because most of it takes place in buildings we will always need we need the same things every industry needs it's just the practical application of that is slightly different because we work in a an artistic usually a very artistic and creative environment and that brings that is different to having using your skill set for IT in that environment as it probably is if you worked in the city for a I don't know major bank or something fundamentally you still need to be good at IT but how you apply the your behaviors and your personalities to your environment is what often separates our industry out I think because it's unique in many ways yeah. yeah. Well, and I think people, when they're spending their leisure time with you, expect a different level of service. Like you say, that if you work in the banking industry in IT, it might be okay that you're not the friendliest person because the likelihood of you, I don't know, plugging network cables in and there being people around who you are serving is probably quite low. You know, you're not guest facing in that respect. But you have to accept that if you're going to work in a visitor attraction even if you don't work in a traditional guest facing role you're going to at some point be asked where the toilets are or you know (laughs) happens to all of us (laughs) yeah no question 
And I think one of the things that's underrated actually in the, I mean, I might just be generalizing here, but I, I feel like lots of people in the industry would support this concept, um, is there is there is a bit of a tendency for people who work in customer facing roles in the kind of service industry, for want of a better word, that where it's maybe it's perceived to be one of the jobs that you get when you can't get the jobs, or it's perceived to be perhaps not as valuable or as worthwhile as other things. And I think it's hugely underestimated what a contribution tourism and the, if you like, the husbandry of the national culture or the international culture, whatever it is you're looking after, serves in the wider context of society. And actually the people who are able to deliver that sort of cultural experience for you in your leisure time, in your undoubtedly hard-earned leisure time, is huge. There are so many people who think it's a doddle until they have to do it and realise how difficult it is. And there's a dignity in service, which I think people throughout service industries, whether that be, you know, that could be everybody from nursing to the postman to, you know, working in a theatre, underestimates that there is a there is a dignity that comes with that desire and that willingness to offer service in any capacity to other human beings. And it's hugely underestimated. So yeah, having understanding that about yourself and feeling confident that that's what you are giving to not just the individual in front of you, but actually collectively to the nation at large, is yeah. is, is is really important for the self-esteem of the people who work in our industry. Yeah, oh I gosh. think definitely flying the flag for, yeah. you know, one of the reasons we did this podcast is to fly the flag for, it's kind of, like you said, that dignity and service is that we do this job and we serve people. And actually it's not burger flipping and it's not doing whatever and it's not doing the jobs that people think oh, you'll get a real job one day, is that this is a real, you know, these are real jobs. Mm. These are real yeah. careers for Absolutely. proper people. And and if you want to flip burgers your whole life and you you know what, you're good at it and you enjoy it and it pays your mortgage, then good for you. Like, yeah, yeah I totally agree. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't agree more. I feel quite passionately about that that side of things. It's sort of, and that, you know, I'm, I'm always really keen to be to massively advocate for our, for our, our customer-facing staff, like as every opportunity I get. And not just for them, but literally for anybody else in that role. Because trust me, there are lots and lots of people out there who last twenty seconds <laughs> when faced to the real world. So yeah, yeah. So all got serious. Sorry, but very serious. Oh, no, no, no. It's good. No, it's all, it's all good. It's all good. Like imagine putting people in a, in in queue lines and stuff, and managing the queue lines. There's a lot of people that will not be able to do that. But the yeah. major thing is the people who are in the industry, they love what they do. They really generally wake up in the morning and go, you know what? I'm going to be doing that. So, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's all good. It's all true as well, of uh, what you mentioned. Um, but that kind of leads me on to a, a question I want to kind of uh, kind of touch on. We've kind of touched up on it already, but it's, it's kind of about leadership. Um, mm. And you've had loads of experience in that, especially recently working at the Royal Apple Hall. And correct me if I'm wrong, you've kind of managed over like a, over 100 people. Is that right? Yeah, my team... And when it's sort of running at full capacity, it can be anything up to around 200 people. Yeah. Wow, that's a lot of people. So I just want to find out kind of like what makes a great leader kind of managing that amount of people, you know, and being the person that's inspiring um, them to do an amazing job. So the customers or visitors or guests has the best time. So kind of what makes a great leader? God, it's a really interesting question. I, it's one of those questions if you ask hundred people you might potentially get hundred different answers um but I'll, to me i think the the number one thing is it's back to this sort of empathy 
sort of emotional intelligence role. You know, you know, you're not leading, you know, crates of oranges. You're leading people, and so having that ability to connect with people so that people trust you, they feel that you're authentic when you speak to them, and that you you have their best interests at heart. I think is really really important and. Trust can't be underestimated. It's the hardest thing to gain and the easiest thing to lose. So that, I think, is really important. I think being forthcoming and straightforward with people is really important as a leader. You know, you're most of the time, I mean, I appreciate maybe not if you're a teacher, but for most industries, you're leading other adults who are, you know, wise and interesting and clever and intuitive and have all of those brilliant traits. And as leaders, you, you need to trust they, you need your people to trust you, but you absolutely have to trust your people. And in some ways that is involves trusting them with information. So if things are difficult or if things are challenging or things need to be a certain way, you need to be able to be forthcoming with them and tell them, explain to them, you know, get those points across to them. Because only through that will you give them, will you empower them to then go off and make their own good decisions. Um, I think there's, it's really important as well to be, I don't want to say organized that sounds really really tedious um but I was gonna say I mean you must you must be super organized (laughs) I'm interested in your your top tips for uh managing 200 people I used to I used to manage 110 and I will say there's a reason I like name badges (laughs) yes yeah 100% but again it's having like a really really good team and a really good structure I've got some brilliant people in my team who who just facilitate that process so well and they're and they're they're such you know kind and generous people that they will always that they I feel so supported in what I do I hope the truth is conversely true for them as well that they feel supported in what they do and they take so much of the kind of weight of that expectation from the from so many people and we have such a lovely structure in place and it is about that having you need vision you know where are we all going and how are we going to get there is really important, a really, really clear plan that people can understand, that they can follow, and that actually they don't need you to hold their hand every step of the way because they are they understand where we're going and they're calm and competent and confident and all the other stuff to get us there. And the last one is inspiring. You know, people, what do people want? They want to they want to feel inspired. You only have to look at what's happening in the country at large at the moment to, to know how important inspiring leadership can be and what it can do to a small team, to to a nation, to, a, to, you know, to the whole world. You know, you look at some of the most inspiring leaders in history. You look at Nelson Mandela, the reason the whole world loves him is partly because he was an inspiring individual, either in and of himself or because of what he went through. So, yeah, that's that what I would say. You know, you've got to love people. You've got to show them where you want them to go. You've got to be able to inspire them together. Oh my gosh! Yeah, absolutely. I think one of kind of the the biggest challenges that I have um, when kind of managing teams is kind of, you know, um, I don't know if this happens to you, Carly, as well. Like, try to organise your team. You know, like just like scheduling or something like that. It, it it's just so like, ah, oh, how do you do it? Um, so I kind of just want to open that up. You know, in kind yeah, of talking what, about what, what what actionable tips have we got <laughs> yeah, please. To, to help us live our lives? <laughs> oh God! So I'm I can't take any of the credit for this whatsoever. Um, a few years ago, we um, so in order to for a show at the Royal Albert Hall, we need give or take. You know, we need, probably need something around fifty stewards. We need 
five or six supervisors, we need a stewarding manager, we need a security team of around 30, 40, all of those supervisors, etc. So it's a big operation just for one day. Mm-hmm. And a few years ago, we realized we were still working on spreadsheets. So we'd have this really, really great woman called Amanda, and she would scribe things on a spreadsheet and she had a desk where she was surrounded by papers, almost so they were higher than her head and you have to peer over the top to see her. And uh, we thought this can't really go on. So um, we scouted around actually for a, um, a piece of software that could help us with this. So we came across a company called uh, Staff Savvy. I hope it's all right, I'll just name them. They're called Staff Savvy. Um, and this really great guy called Andrew, who was just starting out with a rostering system that was for kind of our industry, really based around contracted work, mixes of contracted and casual work, zero hours, all sorts, you know, like every kind of permutation that quite a lot of visitor attractions and tourist places use. Um, and it was quite um, it was quite new at the time. He had, he was, I think he's doing some work with someone like Sheffield University where he got, you know, they're his first big clients and things. Um, and we saw his stuff and it is, I'm not joking, it has completely revolutionized our lives in ways that I can't even begin to describe. When I, you know, I said earlier, like I used to manage 110 in my team and that in peak season, you know, there was a number of managers and we we had 2000 um, seasonal staff between us. And we, without a lie, used to employ a team of people just to do their rotors because yeah. you just, it, it's just a, a massive, massive undertaking. It is, I think, yeah, like I said, and, and that was for a whole summer. I can't imagine having to do that for one, yeah. one event. Crazy. It's all the variables as well. You know, people get sick and people want holidays and, you know, all the good stuff that, you know, that, that's fine. But actually the price of people want to swap shifts, that used to be the big thing. We used to keep a little, we used to have to say to people, you can only swap three shifts a month because we just didn't have the administrative capacity to manage beyond that. So we used to have to impose these, all these really draconian rules on people. And we had, I, a, I remember that. I remember yeah. that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. Which is always this awful thing. Like, you know, we would like to take real control over your lives. Um, so, anyways, no, no comment. Piece. No comment on no, that. No. no. <laughs> Before my time. Uh, but we, so we got this piece of software in, which I'm not joking, has completely changed everything. So, just to give you an example, it used to take us around a full seven working days to do the payroll every month. It used to be spreadsheets and it used to be calculators and it used to be checking and then double checking and triple checking every month like that. And we've got this piece of software called Staff Savvy where you can, it's got an auto roster function. So you set up a load of rules for whatever people's contracts are and you press a button like that. And maybe 15 minutes later, it's rostered everybody. You're like, what? How long? 15 minutes. Yeah, 15 minutes is rostered everybody. And there's a bit of tweaking to do. But just that sheer ability for it to do that is amazing. It's all self-service. So yeah. people what, will swap shifts. What people, on the, what people on the podcast can't see is me and Carlton staring at you, like how much <laughs> of our lives have we spent doing? <laughs> oh. Are you joking? There's one but magic button There that is. you just press it and it does it all for you. The button. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and our administrator, Roxy, um, she does... Um, she will then go through and just double check and make sure, you know, and do lots of checking and a little bit of tweaking and stuff. But the vast bulk of the work is done by the, by the magic button, which is just astonishing. It's all self-serve. People can swap their own shifts. You can put shifts up to be taken away. You can gift people shifts. You can book your own holiday. It just does everything. And at the end of it, 
it'll produce you a piece of payroll, which I reckon used to take seven full, you know, really good eight or nine hour days to deliver. We do in maybe eight hours now. So we've saved almost a week of somebody's life where we, where they can now go off and do things which are miles more interesting than <laughs> Yeah, and I will, you know, I, for, I'm sure everyone who listens to the podcast knows that one of the things my business does is help people find software solutions for exactly this kind of stuff. I am so passionate about, this isn't about reducing staffing. This is about getting your staff to do the stuff that actually impacts the business because do, spending seven days doing payroll versus spending one day doing payroll is you've now freed up six days of that person to do stuff oh, yeah. that actually has a return on investment. <laughs> you know, there's no yeah. return on investment for manual labor in that sense. It really doesn't make any difference. That's no, nice. not at all. And, and also, I think it, it's made that role just so much more interesting, just, just on a day-to-day basis. Like you can now ask Roxy to get involved in things that are much more much less data entry based than, than what was previously you know when every now and again you just you just find the thing that you just wish it existed your whole life it's, it's got that sort of feel about it i mean we would have saved years of our lives yeah. doing this <laughs> and now you just tell us okay thanks yeah. thanks so much it's all right it's fine no problem i will touch the magic button one yeah. day <laughs> We're going to move on to another question. Um, And it is our final question, unfortunately. But um, what advice would you give to your younger self um, if you could change anything to kind of enhance you or maybe move you to a different direction? What what advice would that be? Um, There's a couple of pieces of advice. The number one thing I would probably tell myself is to be braver. I'm not a very, I'm not a natural networker. I thrive quite on, if I'm being honest about myself, I'm, if you put me in a room of 50 people, I'm happy to deliver training, to give a speech, you know, just sort of hold court, if you like, in front of those people. If you put me one-to-one in a room with somebody, I'm the most just awkward, can't think of anything to say, oh, what GCSEs did you get, you know, kind of person. And, and it's, who knows where it's rooted, but, but networking in our industry, I think is really, really important. And you can not just enhance your career, but actually you can just enhance your knowledge so much just by having the right connections or just by being willing to be brave, to go to these events, to, you know, to, to walk up to somebody you don't know and just say, oh, hi, I'm Anthony. I work at Royal Albert Hall. Who are you and what do you do? And after that, I've got no advice because I'm a terrible networker, but I, I would like it as a younger person if I'd been a bit braver, got a bit more used to it, but was a bit more accomplished at it. You know, but I just I have a passionate belief in diversity of thought. You know, if you ask, you know, if you ask the same subset of people the same questions over and over again, you'll get the same answers. And actually, networking it just broadens you in so many different and good ways. So I would give myself that piece of advice, um, and I would remind myself that there's a really great quote by Muhammad Ali, where he says, "Nothing great or good was ever achieved by those who conformed." And I think as a lesson for the world at large, you know, if you look at the great sort of people in history who've made like fundamental changes, none of it was ever done through conformity. And so I think maybe when I was younger, I would just remind myself of that. You know, conformity conformity leads to the status quo. And let's face it, what nobody wants that. That's awesome, awesome. advice. Really, really thank great you. advice. Well, um, thank you, Anthony. That has been an absolute 
roller coaster of emotions, I think, for us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We've been on the Titanic. And, and now, actually, I have a very important question, which is how many eggs were on the Titanic? Oh, it was 15,000. Oh, my God. Okay. 15,000 You know what? Like, I would have been Googling that straight after. Yeah. That things, weird things you remember. I know. I know. Yeah. It was so much fun. Uh, we used to have a gentleman come in every day. This is probably an aside. But I had a gentleman come in every day with a carrier bag full of clippings, which he claimed proved that he owned the Titanic. And he would come in every day and he would bring out his carrier bag and he would show me all the clippings and every day I would sort of go, oh, right, yeah, that's brilliant. You should, have you ever taken this to a solicitor or a lawyer? And he'd go, no, no, no. And then he would pat them all away again and go away and then he'd be back again at 10 o'clock the following morning and we'd do it all over again. So that was quite fun. <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes people forget that we're sort of like a kind of a, a weird sort of social service as much as, you know, yeah. I think, you know, in the way that kind of libraries and stuff are, it's like if you are in a public building, then you're sort of, yeah you know, easy fodder for, for, for people, you know, lonelier people who don't get conversation. You might be the only person they speak to that day. And it's yeah, really he was a lovely bloke even... as well. And, yeah. you know, by the end, it ran for nearly nine months. By the end of it, I would quite really look forward to him coming. Oh, yeah, he's coming in together. We had a sort of little relationship going on. It was really nice, yeah. 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 So apart, apart from at the Royal Albert Hall, where can people find you if they want to get in touch or know more about you? Is there anything that's... Uh, um, any place LinkedIn, in particular yeah LinkedIn's probably the best place to be honest I'm under what, my real name which is good um, <laughs> I do I don't do Facebook anymore because it's yeah oh no no thanks and on Twitter I tend to just curate very carefully what I like to look at sort okay. of yeah so LinkedIn if, if anybody's really that interested lovely I'm, I'm sure we'll get some people messaging you and asking you about how many other things were on the Titanic <laughs> that you might know about. <laughs> well, even to, you never you might get a publisher want to write a book about toilets. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good point. Yeah. Never know. Yeah, my USP, toilets and eggs on the Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely the uh, title for your, your autobiography, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> amazing well yeah thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, i'm sure we will speak to you in the future yeah no thank you both so very much i really enjoyed it really appreciate it thanks for listening to the brown sign project in our next episode we talk to lucy handel tendler a marine biologist working in health and safety within the tourism industry and thanks as always to our series sponsors stephen spencer and associates and staff savvy the Brown Sign Project was edited by Paul Tyler. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Brown Sign Pod.